in the reading corner today, we're off for an adventure with Juliet Forrest, and we're going to be talking about her latest book, which is The Mountain Rescue Dog. So first of all, can I give you a huge welcome into the reading corner? Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute delight to to be here. So, uh, and yeah, I'm I'm, uh, really excited to talk about the Mountain Rescue Dog. I know you have quite an adventurous spirit yourself. You've been off around the world with your backpack. Tell us about some of the things that you've done. (laughs) Well, yes, that was when uh, a few years ago when I was in my 20s and I, I, funnily enough, I can actually trace this back to reading as a child. And I think it was Amazon Adventure by um, Willard Price. Uh, he wrote about, oh gosh, I think it's terribly on PC. I think um, there was two boys who were collecting animals for a zoo. But I just remember thinking how exotic and how wild and how I wanted to see a wee bit more of the world because of this book or because of the series of books so yes so I I, uh, packed up I I jacked in my job and packed my rucksack and headed off and had the most incredible experience and some of the things that I did was uh, diving the Great Barrier Reef and I went to visit the Karen tribe in Thailand and stayed with them we were what rafting down the rivers I threw myself out of a plane at 10,000 feet uh, visited the jungle in Thailand and Malaysia I actually ended up staying in the jungle which was quite an experience uh, in Malaysia so and then lastly kind of heard across America on the Greyhound bus so it, I mean it really was I think one of the best years of my life Now, what's really interesting to me listening to you talk is, first of all, that reading can do that, too. Um, It sort of is it stands in for that experience and does it extremely well, as you yourself have said, because it was a book that opened the door to the great outdoors for you. And I'm really interested as well that you mentioned Willard Price, that perhaps some people sitting at home would just automatically assume that that's boys reading. So important that we don't pigeonhole our readers. Absolutely, 100%. I felt that way from the very beginning. Um, I, I think it's, it's you know, even though this has, I think I, I do write girl protagonists, but they're, they're in, in my mind, they're relatable, both for girls and boys. And it's for those who do want a bit of adventure. And I'm absolutely on board with what you're saying. I, I, I don't, I never want to kind of pigeonhole readers, you know, I want them to read kind of everything. And that's, I mean, that's what I did as a child. I mean, I, was so lucky because my mum was a teacher and not only did I get books from her school, I was taken to the library as well. And much to my shame, I was so voracious. I don't remember them all. (laughs) You know, my nose was constantly buried in a book. But you're whisked off to the other side of the world where you can smell it and you can sense it. And it is, it's not the same as being there, but it's the next best thing. (laughs) well we're getting carried away with all these wonderful places we could visit but we really want to talk about your book the mountain rescue dog so Juliet, just tell us a little bit about the story to start us off 
So this is set in the Scottish Highlands and I've actually, it's a fictitious Glen. I, I didn't really want to centre it on, I suppose if there was any Glen, it would have been Glen Cole. But when I wrote this book, I was actually in lockdown and I couldn't physically go there and take notes. So, I mean, I have been to Glen Cole, but I decided just, just to, to make it a fictitious Glen and this is where uh, a girl lives in the hotel that's situated in the Glen and her mum passed away in a tragic accident. Her mum was in search and rescue and her dad is left running the hotel and her grandpa has been brought in to help out. But but the girl, her name is Clover and she's desperately sad, misses her mum and one day she's she goes along to the local farm and she meets this abandoned dog and makes a connection with this dog. There's actually quite a few similarities with the pair. And then the rest of the story is her training the dog to become search and rescue. But it's a little bit like Romeo and Juliet in a sense in that they can never quite be together because they've got to be in secret because her dad disapproves as he doesn't want her putting herself in danger. It was really interesting to me uh, listening to you talk there because you've set your book in these mountains and as you talked about all these wonderful adventures you've been on, not one of them had a mountain in it. Where does the love of mountains come from? This is, I mean, great question. I don't quite know where I am obsessed about mountain climbing. I'm obsessed with Everest. Um, I follow all the top climbers of the world on Instagram. I've watched every documentary there is going. There's something that I'm fascinated by. I suppose it's how physically fit these people are that goes up go up into the mountains but I think the main thing is and 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 I really wanted to understand why you would put yourself at risk what is it about this sport about this hobby that you would risk everything for and it you know it's it's more it's more than a beautiful view I mean sometimes they get to the top they can't even see anything it's more than mother nature because they are very connected with mother nature it's more than competitiveness you know against other climbers I know there's a place in Glencone I think it's called the church door buttress and that is a, a famous rock to climb and Climbers come from all over the world to go up it, but to, to discover new routes up it and to discover the, the, the quickest route up it. And I think that has had such a big kind of influence on this book. Even though I am a chicken, you would never find me on a mountain unless it was at the base of the mountain. <laughs> but I just, it, it's something, yeah, I'm completely fascinated with. And I think through writing this book, I actually got to the bottom of the question of why do people do this? And it was to feel alive. They were risking their lives. They were risking death to feel alive. And that made sense to me. That made sense. Because if you think about it, every one of their senses is being used, you know, their body, their muscles, their vision, their hearing, their their battle almost against mother nature their in internal battle as well you know it's driving them to do this 
So I, I think this has just been wonderful to sort of explore as, 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 as the part of writing this book. Mountain rescue um, is important. And obviously Clover, Clover's mother was uh, a rescuer, part of the rescue service. And her grandfather um, was one of my favourite characters in the book, you know, working at the hotel. His sort of fortitude and um, his sort of gentle understanding of her. I mean, I absolutely loved him. Um, Is he based uh, at all on Hamish McInnes, who you've also written about in your author's note, a founding member or or a founder of the Mountain Rescue Service? Hamish McInnes, uh, it has been an absolutely huge influence on this book. He is known as kind of the father of modern mountain rescue. And it was actually, you know, he conceived the idea of the uh, Search and Rescue Dog Association. So Hamish McInnes was, was just one of Scotland's kind of foremost mountaineers. And he actually lived in Glencoe. And him and his buddies, if there was a climber in trouble on the mountains, they would use the local hotel as a base which I thought was just fabulous because you've got obviously the people in the hotel and they are a part of this huge adventure and the drama and able to serve, you know, the search and rescue team, you know, soup and a a wee dram of whiskey, you know, when they get down off the mountain and they're the first to know whether it was successful or not. And I just thought, what a great setting actually for a story. But it was, you know, in the days of, you know, they didn't have North Face quilts and and all the high-tech gear of nowadays, you know, they would throw on another jumper, they would light their pipes, they would sling their ropes over their shoulders after a hard day's work to go off. And and it's funny, I, I spoke to a search and rescue chap over in Ireland called Darla Folan, and as he said to me, he had a twinkle in his voice, and he said, well, twinkle in his eye as well, but he said, um, Search and rescue very rarely happens in good weather. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to know it's going to be in the middle of the night. It's a howling storm and uh, off Hamish and his friends would go. And it's all the scrapes that people would get themselves into. Some of them very technical, you know, to rescue them. And this, all the while, there was this banter going on between the rescuers, you know, winding each other up and playing practical jokes on each other and... No matter what had happened, whether the the uh, person who they were rescuing had perished or whether they'd saved them, they still had this sense of humour. It never really dipped. They kept each other going. And that's what I wanted to capture. There's a couple of um, small rescues, if you like, at, at the beginning of the book, one with a young man um, and one with a sort of older older woman. And you don't lecture. I just want to say that. But one doesn't have shoes with very good tread and the other doesn't seem at all uh, kitted out for uh, being on the mountain. And there must be a sense of people putting themselves in danger and consequently putting other people's lives in danger. So to maintain such a positive spirit when you possibly feel that people have brought it on themselves. Hmm. Difficult one. 
Uh, it's a difficult one. It's funny because sometimes, you know, if you go through old newspaper reports, the search and rescue will be very clear that they are not happy with the group or the person because people are not equipped. And yes, people's lives are at risk. And that's that's the difficult one because they have to say that, you know, they have to warn people that that they should know what they're doing and, and that they should have the right equipment. And I felt very much like Hamish McInnes, he was very accepting of the fact that it could happen to the best of them. And in fact, pointed out that he himself had been rescued and Chris Bonington as well had to be rescued. So I think it's part and parcel of kind of mountain climbing. <laughs> yeah, there is a character, um, uh, Tatty, the dog, and uh, obviously the, the training of the dogs is another aspect of your story. So maybe tell us a bit about what you know and what you found out there. And does it come from, you know, owning dogs yourself? Is that part of part of this? I think, yes. I adopted an ex-street dog from Cyprus, and that was through the Wild at Heart Foundation. And when he arrived, what was really interesting to me was he was, I hadn't quite, I hadn't quite computed, but he was quite feral. I don't think he'd been in a house before, he'd certainly not been in a lead. He was petrified of traffic. And the pair of us went through quite, a lot you know a long journey together and we're still going through this journey but I think actually now that you've just mentioned that and I hadn't connected the two but I think Clover daydreams you know that that you know when she's with him that he will hang on to her every word and he will follow her like a lamb and he will adore her but the reality is no not at all <laughs> terrified he won't come out from behind the the crates and he's skittish and she you know he pulls on the lead and and I thought you know that's the way it should be you know it would be in slight lassie territory if he just kind of followed her and then looked at her and, and, and sort of barked twice for there's somebody in trouble over there in the river you know so I definitely use my experience with my dog to try and build that bond between them and that it, it did go a bit pear-shaped at the beginning. The search and rescue training was something that I had to research. It was a completely new area for me to look into. I knew nothing about it. I did buy a book, <laughs> which was a very old book. I think got flown in from America. I don't think there's much demand for, for such books. And it was about the search and rescue dog training. And I thought, oh, gosh, I really need to speak to somebody about this. But here's serendipity for you, because my agent was out cycling in Ireland and just out the blue bumped into this guy who was walking his dogs. And it turned out that he was with search and rescue over in, in Ireland. <laughs> So uh, I was able to, to speak to that was Jarlith Follin and I was able to speak to him and he was just brilliant. He, he was fabulous in taking me through kind of the training steps, just telling me, giving me a, a feeling of what it was like when you were out and, and things like, um, you know, the pressure they're under. To you know, I didn't realise it's not like there's five of them together. You're you're given a, a grid to search on a on a map, you and the dog alone. 
And so it's your responsibility. So if you don't search that area properly, it's on your own head. Be it. And that had never occurred to me. But I think from, from there, I had uh, gone off and just read up a wee bit more about the training side of things and learned um, the most incredible things, like there are kind of three ways that dogs will search for, for people, and it's uh, tracking. That's when they're given a bit of a set, uh, like a piece of the clothing or an object belonging to the missing person, and dogs will track. Trailing. So that's when they are specifically on the track of somebody and they are smelling. It could even be the rubber on the soles of their shoes that they're picking up on scent wise. And the last one is ear scenting. So the scent is actually somewhere up ahead. And what I didn't realize was that scent comes out of things in waves. So if you had a boot, let's say a climbing boot, waves will come out of the boot and come down and hit the ground and then they'll bounce back up again. So there's all sorts of fascinating things like this. And the fact that we have 5 million scent receptors in our nose and dogs have 125 million. So they can smell something as small as a single human skin cell in the air just listening to you talk it strikes me that you're somebody that likes a good rabbit hole to go down with your research I love it I I am the collector of strange and unusual facts (laughs) I'd love to get a flavor of the story would you read some to us of course I would be delighted to so this is just a really short excerpt kind of getting near the end of the story so our heroine's called Clover And she's gone into the helicopter with the dog who's called Tatty. And they're with another search and rescue lady called Isla. And actually, I've got a female helicopter pilot, which does exist. And I wanted to sort of pay homage to her. And so they are in terrible conditions. They are going up to the top of the mountain. There's been an avalanche. Uh, A couple of people from search and rescue have been hit. And Clover doesn't know if her dad has been struck as well. So it's actually a really worrying situation for her. And even worse, her and Tati have not been in this situation before. So high drama. (laughs) Lynn swung the helicopter in until the blades were centimetres away from the rock. They dropped down at an angle and Clover felt a bump as the runner of the helicopter connected with a giant slab of stone. Go, 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 said Lynn. Isla opened the door. Clover took her headset off and shuffled forward. She felt a hand at her back, shoving her. Duck, Clover, duck! Clover made herself smaller and jumped with Tatty. Landing on the rock, she slipped and crashed down. Tatty followed her, barking in her ear. Clover scrambled off the rock as fast as she could. She waded through some deep snow to put distance between her and the helicopter. Snow kicked up, blinding her. Everything was dark. She could have landed on Mars for all she knew. Isla threw out the avalanche probe and shovel and jumped. She held her balance on the rock and ran for cover. A split second later, the helicopter rose up and flew out of sight. 
Has she gone? yelled Clover in a panic. She's moved. She's worried about triggering the overhang. Come on, we need to hurry. They headed for Raven Gully as fast as they could. Tatty was skittish. Clover remembered what her grandpa had told her at Stoneburn Farm. She relaxed her grip and tried to hide her fear from the collie. She patted Tatty's side until he focused his attention on her. She rewarded him with a treat, but he was too overwhelmed to take it. With her head torch on, all Clover could see in front of her was the sleep falling. She pushed down her trepidation and thought about her dad, Pete and Bill. Isla, Clover and Tatty entered Raven Gully. On either side, Clover could just make out the towering walls of rock, which afforded them a little shelter from the wind and sleet. She stood, feeling like a fish out of water. Clover forgot what to do. Her mind went blank. She'd never heard the wind like this before. There were noises coming from the mountain she didn't think possible. Tatty's ears flattened and his tail was tucked between his legs. She could see the whites of his eyes. Isla appeared at her side. Get Tatty ready to search, she shouted. This was not the time to lose it. Clover tapped Tatty, let out his lead and gave him the command. Tatty galloped ahead, barking. His head moved from left to right, as if he was trying to work out where he was. The snow stuck to his coat, turning it from black to white. Clover commanded him again. He strained on the lead. Come on, Tatty, you can do this. Go seek, Clover willed him on. Tatty's head went down. He began to scent the snow. He stopped and whined, holding one of his paws in the air. He ran towards her and got under her feet. Clover had not only overestimated what she was capable of, she'd done it with Tatty as well. She hated that Grandpa had been right again. Being on the mountain in these conditions was completely different to being in the woods or moors during the day. They hadn't prepared for this. What had she been thinking? You know, a phrase that's going to stick with me is you don't have mountain rescue in good weather. So you've always got drama there ready in your story. There's always going to be bad weather to to deal with. And I learned quite a lot about dog behaviour too and from uh, reading your story as well as just enjoying the pure um, adventure story. And then there's another aspect to it, too, which is about relationships. So there's Clover's relationship with her father, with her grandfather, but also there's something underlying it about friendship. And she has she has a friend called Sally. And what we see here is how children's relationships change as they grow and get older. And I I really enjoyed that strand of the story, too. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I think. I realised that, you know, unfortunately, not every child, you know, that children lose their parents or carers or loved ones. And I think it can cause actually great awkwardness between children because they don't quite know how to approach it, probably because adults don't really know how to, to approach the subject unless it's sort of something you've been through yourself. 
But uh, there was a very good friend of mine and her daughter lost her father when she was very young. And one of her school friends had said, you know, I lost my guinea pig. I know how you feel. <laughs> and, you know, at the time it devastated my friend's daughter. But it, it was the girl desperately trying to relate to, you know, this situation. And I think that struck a chord with me. And I, I think I wanted a bit of kind of miscommunication between the girl and her best friend, that the best friend did try to support her, but I think was pushed away by Clover because I think it's something that, you know, children need to kind of work, and adults too, they need to work this out and work through it. And I think almost sometimes there's a wee bit of guilt if, if they're having a bit of a laugh and a joke about things, you know, to be too happy would be wrong. Mm. But to be too sad drives people away. So it's, I think it's a terrible thing for children plus adults to, to go through, but especially children, because people just have to navigate, very much like the mountains, they have to navigate their way through, through grief as well. Mm-hmm. But it was important to have, there was like a friend there as well. But I mean, ultimately, it was Tati who became her confidant, who she could speak her truth to. And I think that's something, again, that's wonderful about dogs. And and I think there's uh, incredible power in animals and people being able to sort of be themselves or to be able to get their true feelings out. And and I sort of wanted to reflect that in, in Clover and Tati's relationship. Because the dog doesn't expect her to behave in a particular way, which, of course, Sally, her friend, cannot understand why Clover still you know, has a connection with the mountain, the the thing that caused her mother's death. Whereas the dog, it is unconditional. It's unquestioning of her behaviour. Absolutely. And I think that was, you know, that was quite an interesting one, you know, writing that bit about, well, how does Clover feel about the mountain? Because she's really torn. And it was from, I think, learning so much about Everest and how they feel that, you know, Everest is actually a goddess. And that the the, the Nepalese, the Sherpas will, will give offerings to ask for her safe passage, her permission. The fact that the mountain is living it is a living thing. So there is this theme that the mountain is alive. And I very much wanted to put that character into the mountain. So some days it looked friendly and approachable and that it would take a couple of hours and a lovely stroll up to the top. And other days it would loom ominously and threateningly over the hotel and make people shudder a wee bit, like you just really wouldn't want to, to dice with it. And that's kind of how she feels in, in, in the sense that she has grown up with that mountain there. Her mother has taught her to love everything about that mountain and the wildlife around her and the connection. But the mountain took her mother's life away. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's an absolute sort of conundrum for her a wee bit. But I think the thing that wins her over is that when Clover is out in the wilds, her memories come back of conversations and times that she's had with her mum. 
And that brings her mum alive. And therefore she begins to equate the mountain with her mum and loves it. So that's why she feels very defensive. I think when her friend says, you know, why on earth would you want to go to the place that killed your mum? But you can understand from her friend's mm. point of view, who doesn't have that connection with the great outdoors and nature, questioning, well, you know, you wouldn't want to go anywhere near that place, would you? You just never want to see it again, kind of a thing. But Clover can't do that. Well, Julia, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you today. Um, I recommend the Mountain Rescue Dog to all of our listeners. It's a thrilling adventure, but it's going to move you as well uh, emotionally. So uh, thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> in the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Scholastic Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.